Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're doing our July 2019 Paper Scraps episode, where we look at some of the latest news of the business and answer your TV writing questions, this time all about managers, branding, and writing classes. So let's get started. Okay, and first up, we have an update about Paul and the mentorship process that we've been going through, and it's some good news. So Paul sent us an email the other day saying, hey guys, I have some news. I've been staffed on a show. I found out this week and the room starts Monday. I couldn't be more excited, and I feel like so many things that I've learned from Paper Team have helped me to get here. Totally wild, and I can hardly believe it. So thank you guys. I also recently signed with a manager, which has been great so far. I've been working on a couple of feature projects with them, and they're excited to take it out to production companies. So first up, Congratulations, Paul. That's incredible. Yeah, that is truly mind-blowing that he is already staffed, has managers. It's only been a few months. Obviously, he's done a lot of work on his end. I remember when uh, we first met Paul, I think it was at our January mixer earlier this year. And uh, a lot has happened in that amount of time. I mean, as you said, obviously, Paul's been working at this for a long time and and getting his his point to that his stuff to that level. But uh, yeah, it's awesome to see, you know, he's gotten into fellowships, he's won the tracking board thing, and now he's staffed and has managers. So yeah, it's incredible. We're Uh, very proud of just being there, even if it's only doing 10% or 1% of whatever brought him there. I I think personally, it's uh, great that we could even be present in that way for someone. Absolutely. Now, unfortunately, this does mean that uh, Paul won't be able to continue writing Mid-Death Crisis as part of the mentorship process uh, with us for now due to being so busy and being on staff and adjusting to all of that. But, you know, ultimately that was the goal of the mentorship was to get him to this kind of place. So we are super happy for him. So I guess we're going to be making a few little adjustments moving forward. Yeah, we can actually announce a couple of awesome things for you guys to look out for. The number one thing is we are at least going to do one big update with Paul about staffing and his current situation and how he's approaching this new job, essentially following him on the experience of being this first-time staff writer. And that update will be published exclusively on Patreon at paperteam.co slash Patreon. And hopefully there will be more of those updates to come. Tune in for that. We will see how that process develops. But the other huge thing that we wanted to announce is to sort of celebrate in a way the win of uh, Paul and uh, his uh, staffing. We are resurrecting our Patreon Paper T's feedback segment. Do you remember what that was? <laughs> it's so long ago. <laughs> In the years yonder. <laughs> so remind us what Paper T's is or was or will be uh, for our listeners who may be more new to Paper Team. Yeah, so Paper Tease is essentially a segment where we review the teasers of eight pages or less from our listeners who send them in. It can be comedies, they can be dramas, they can be whatever you want. And we will read out a summary and then we will give you our notes and thoughts on the teaser. And traditionally, we have kind of selected winners overall of all the ones that have been read out on air during the month. And in the past, we've had prizes. In the future, we might be doing something a little different. Absolutely. And the Paper Tease entries are actually open right now as you're listening to us talking about Paper Tease. You could also go on the website. Don't multitask if you are driving right now. But if you're not, go on paperteam.co slash teaser to submit your teaser. And uh, as uh, Nick said, it can be any genre, any format, drama, comedy, half hour, one hour, whatever it is. It just needs to be eight pages or less of your actual teaser from an original TV pilot, not features, TV pilot only. And please properly format it so that we know it's actually a teaser and not just the first eight pages of your script. For example, if your teaser is only two pages, 
You can just send us two pages. You don't have to send us eight pages of two page of a teaser and uh, six pages of an act one. Right. It should say teaser or cold open and then end on the teaser. Don't just kind of send us your whole script and make us pick out what we think is the best because we're probably just going to ignore that. Yeah, so this whole paper tease thing is how uh, Alex and I were introduced to Paul in the first place and started working with him on it. Uh, and by the end of it, we will hope to be selecting uh, someone else for our second mentorship. And let's see if we can uh, second time's the charm. Mm, I'm sure it will. Once again, you can submit your teasers at paperteam.co slash teaser. And we have another thing to announce. Yeah, so our 150th episode of Paper Team is fast approaching. And so we really want to hear from our listeners what your favorite moments and episodes from the past three years of the podcast have been. Uh, what do you think was the most insightful? Which guests did you really love and enjoy and maybe want to hear more from if we were to check back in with them? So uh, please let us know anything like that at ask at paperteam.co so we can put together a really great 150th episode for you. Yeah, we're very excited about that episode. And now let's get to your questions. Okay, so we had an email from Saivar Haldorsen, uh, and he said, Hi guys, love the episode you just did on what resources you use for writing. I would love to hear if you guys took any of the TV writing classes or seminars from people like Jen Grisanti or Pilar Alexandra or Corey Mandel. Also, if you took any classes in TV writing for continuing education like UCLA or USC, is this a topic you could discuss? Well, actually, to that idea of doing an episode on that topic, I just looked it up. And uh, way back in 2016, in October 2016, we did a whole episode just based on the question of should you pay for TV running education? That is PT-19. Uh, and I think we're at PT-145 right now. <laughs> it's been a while. But nonetheless, I think the content of that episode is still worthwhile, even though it's been a few years now, in terms of whether or not gauging whether or not it's worth going to not just uh, classes, but also college for TV running education. That said, what are your thoughts in uh, 2019 on those questions? Yeah, I think the answer to this question is always going to be really up to the individual and what you're hoping to get out of it. You know, I did a master's program in screenwriting, and while I enjoyed the content of the classes and I, I did learn things from it, honestly, the most of what I found valuable was the people around me and being able to kind of build my network and uh, use each other as uh, resources for reading scripts and giving notes, and then also just that structured environment for having a deadline and writing and uh, understanding kind of those expectations and, and being part of, you know, an environment where you're wanting to learn and grow and that kind of thing rather than necessarily I learned some secret key to screenwriting from doing this course. So in my mind, it really is just like, where are you now? And what do you want to get better at? And what's the best way for you to do that? Because it's entirely possible for you to go to go get a library card, or go on Amazon and order a bunch of books about screenwriting and, and recreate the same experience for yourself at home without having to pay uh, expensive tuition fees. Uh, it's more a matter of what extra things you're going to get out of those classes. You're going to be meeting other people in the industry and peers you can start writers groups with. Is the person running the class a professional writer who might keep you in mind one day for one, an assistant job on one of their shows? Things like that. Yeah, you can also binge listen to all aforementioned 140 episodes of Paper Team to get that content. <laughs> I definitely agree 100% with everything you just said. Uh, and I think that is what the difference is between going to, let's say, UCLA, USC and not is just the people you're going to be meeting there and having that structure essentially kind of like a running group. Now, with that said, it's essentially about weighing whether that tuition fee is worth that to you. Because wherever you are in the world in 2019, whether it's in Antarctica or LA or New York or wherever else, you have the tools available to you right now on the internet to access 
the knowledge that you need to know to be a TV writer on the craft level. Now, outside of the craft level, it's all about the business and it's all about connections and meeting those people. And again, you still have those opportunities online and locally to create those writing groups and the community of peers that are working with you at the same level. UCLA, USC, those different film schools, they definitely facilitate that, but it's not the end all be all. Yeah, I guess it's about how you personally learn best. If you're very self-motivated and you can pull your stuff together and and be structured and disciplined about it, then you can maybe just do it from home. But if you are someone who struggles to carve the time out of their schedule or you, you have trouble meeting deadlines or getting things done, then perhaps a more structured environment where you have people working one-on-one and mentoring you would be better for you. In terms of which specific classes it's worth taking, I can't really speak to that as I haven't taken any of these particular ones out here. Most of my, my study was back in Australia. So I guess just kind of look up reviews and and ask around for experiences of people who have done them. Yeah, personally, I had sort of the opposite experience than Nick in the sense of while Nick went to film school to do screenwriting, I did go to a film school in Paris, but it wasn't really much about screenwriting. It was more about production and uh, different other elements. And to be honest, I am kind of self-taught in the art of or the craft of TV running on its basics just because I didn't have access to that. You know, there's no class about TV running in Paris, at least there wasn't when I started. Uh, And I wasn't going to pay tens of thousands of dollars to go to UCLA or USC. That wasn't really practical or doable for me. Uh, So I turned to books. And 10 years ago, which, I mean, I can't believe this was 10 (laughs) years ago now, but 10 years ago, there weren't that many books. There were maybe three or four of those TV writing books. And those books have been updated. And uh, like you mentioned, our TV craft resource episode uh, a few weeks ago delved deeper into what books you should be reading to get that content. But with all that said, again, you have that content accessible online, whether it's on Paper Team or other websites, other podcasts that can offer the craft. So really, the big thing is if you are worried about the craft level, you can get that content anywhere, presumably. But if it's more about the business side and the networking, then you got to look at other ways of uh, getting those connections. And actually, spoiler alert, our next episode next week is going to be all about the TV business resource. So that will definitely help in that level as well. Yeah. And the last thing I would say is just be very careful about vetting which classes you're going to take and who is giving them. The best classes I think you could take are are by working professionals who are either currently working right now or have had a genuine career in Hollywood. So it'd be a little bit more wary of folks who are perhaps just an assistant at some company and offering a a class on the weekends or whatever it happens to be. They make sure that these people have the real credentials. Absolutely. And that leads us to our next batch of questions. And they were all sent by Varta Torsin, who came back with more questions after we answered all her awesome questions in the last Paper Scraps episode. And this time it's all about managers. And Varta asks, I have a couple of questions regarding representation. I have recently started to take meetings with managers and they have responded very favorably to my scripts. However, there are a couple of things that came up at the meetings. Number one, I write in a few genres, sci-fi, drama, dramedy, mind-bending, imaginative one-hour pilots, and feature scripts. The managers seem to prefer that I pick a lane. I know that's a very common thing in the industry, but I was wondering, do you know of any managers out there who encourage versatility and having more than one genre in your portfolio? I know many established writers who tell all kinds of totally different stories, and they do it masterfully, but that's harder to do when you are just starting and managers want to brand you. I'd love to know if there are certain management companies that favor writers who work that way. And if not, how do I make a choice in what direction to go as I love to challenge myself creatively with different genres? 
That's a great question, and it's a really well thought out. So in terms of other management companies that encourage you to be a jack-of-all-trades rather than sort of a specialist in a genre, I, I can't think of anyone who is, you know, they build their brand upon having writers who do a little bit of everything. That's not to say there aren't some out there. Perhaps there are some smaller kind of more independent managers who are willing to nurture that kind of approach and encourage you to spread your wings and do whatever you want at that level. But I would say that by and large, the industry standard is management companies encouraging you to find your brand and find your voice and find the thing that they can sell you with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reason why they do that is simply because it's easier for them to sell you to other people, right? Because if they go out and they describe Varta as this awesome sci-fi, mind-bending, action-driven, genre thriller uh, writer, they can easily define you in that way. And then other people would quickly understand with that shorthand what kind of assignments you'd be great for whenever that sci-fi, mind-bending pilot shows up for them to staff on. Whereas if you have a lot of variety in your portfolio, while it's great to show that versatility on a craft level in terms of practically selling you as a writer and a fully formed brand, it's much more difficult for them to overcome that obstacle. Right. And I think so much so that there are management companies that are quite the opposite. They will focus on a particular kind or genre of writers and only really represent those writers. There are certain companies that are really big on animation writers and they don't really do as much in like the drama one hour space and that kind of thing. And again, it's because that allows them to craft the most possible and the deepest possible connections with that side of the industry and place their writers in there. And then people can go to them knowing, oh, I need a really great animation writer. I can go to Gotham or Cartel or whatever it happens to be and know that I'm getting the best of the best because they know exactly what they're talking about. Yeah. And I think the fear that most people have is, well, if I'm only defining myself as a sci-fi writer, will I always be writing sci-fi until the day I die. And truthfully, maybe 10, 15 years ago, that was the reality. But now, today, it's not really as defined once you have that career built up because those frontiers, those boundaries between genres and formats are really porous, right? Because you have comedy writers in drama rooms, you have drama writers in comedy rooms. We just talked about it in our PT 143 episode, revisiting the comedy v drama debate recently. And I think that is the big question is, how do you want to define yourself moving forward as opposed to what you want to define yourself as now. Because when you are starting out, you kind of need to pick that lane to start out because nobody knows who you are and it's better and it's easier for them to understand you from one perspective than it is from 10 different angles. Right, and it makes you more memorable. They're going to remember, even you're just meeting other assistants or people at your level at a party, they remember you as the sci-fi writer and the next time they hear about you know their boss or someone's boss is in need of a sci-fi writer, they think of you. They hear that someone is a general drama writer, they're not going to immediately think of you if you said that you're a general drama writer. It's a little more specific. Yeah. And one way to go about it is just thinking about what kinds of stories you want to tell on a personal level, because I think that's a big thing in terms of the meetings and, and the staffing process is how does that material connect to you as a human being in terms of your experiences and your personal stories? And if you can figure out sort of what your angle on the personal side is, then I think it's easier to define, oh, now I get why I'm writing, let's say sci-fi or whatever kind of genre, because I'm telling those various specific stories. And they could 
transcend that format or that genre, but at least you have a very defined lane in terms of who you are as a human being. Right. Like think about what are you most passionate about? What do you enjoy writing? What would you want to spend your life working in if you could only work in one genre? Uh, and what do you think is your strongest material? What do people tend to respond to? And maybe that's where you need to start and branch out from there. And I'm going to be honest, looking at your email here, it doesn't seem like these genres are that disparate. Sci-fi, drama, mind-bending, imaginative, even dramedy. You could look at like a Charlie Kaufman movie and it's all of those things. So I don't think that you're, you know, it's not like you're saying I'm a gritty horror R-rated writer and I'm also a rom-com writer. Those two things I think are very hard to mesh together. Whereas your things, you could put all those elements into a pilot. Well, to that idea, let's dig into her second question, which I think will uh, illuminate us a little bit more. And in her second question, she asks, my writing skews towards younger audiences, but a couple of the managers I met asked me if I am willing to make my scripts darker. They said that that's what is in demand right now and will have a better chance selling something darker, even though it was written for a YA audience. They also assured me that if the script sells, I will most likely be hired to rewrite it and make it more family-friendly. Do you think that every manager out there is going to try and steer my career towards what sells, or should I just keep looking for the right manager who will get who I am as a writer, my voice, my set of skills, and choice of genres? Yeah, that's another good question. I personally, I think I would be wary of anyone who is trying to put you into a box that you don't want to be in because they think that it's more marketable. You know, if all of your stuff is more lighthearted or blue sky, younger audience, there's definitely, a, you know, opportunities for that out there. You don't have to be trying to do a stranger things. And in fact, I think probably too many people right now are trying to chase that stranger things, dark kind of genre. And by the time you get your pilot done and you take it out to the town, development has already moved way past that and it's on to the next thing. So uh, we've talked about trying to chase trends before, and we generally don't think that's a good idea. Managers are obviously and agents in particular are always looking for like what the town wants right now. But I don't know if I necessarily agree with whoever this was in terms of this is the right way to go right now, especially yeah, for you. I definitely agree. I feel like to me, the red flag here isn't necessarily that the manager wants something darker. The red flag is that the manager is trying to position that very specific YA content that you already have and transition it into a darker piece. And the reason why I say this is because if they were looking for something that's darker, then they would ask you to create something darker as opposed to just shifting completely a genre that you already familiar yourself in and, uh, and shifting a content, a piece of content that you already created. I think that's the danger here is sort of trying to revisit 10 different versions of this YA piece. It's much easier and much more effective to create this awesome, amazing YA piece as opposed to this sort of like middling, mid-tier, piece of content that can service both YA and darker uh, territories. And we'll revisit in post. It's kind of like that idea of like, we'll rewrite it later. The reality is that's not really how it works. Uh, you can't really predict what's going to happen. I'm sure you will get a guarantee of a rewrite in the contract. But regardless of that, that doesn't mean you're going to be happy with the outcome. And uh, presumably the studio, if they are buying this darker script, they are probably not interested in a YA take because they are looking to get a darker script. That's why they just bought it. So again, it's a little bit of a red flag in the sense of shifting one tone to the other just to satisfy the business side is kind of worrying to me. Yeah. And I think that what might be happening here is that kind of what we talked about in the first question, some managers have much stronger connections in certain spaces. So it might just be that this manager knows a lot of people who are in the darker YA space or whatever it is, and they know people who are looking for that content. And so they're out there searching for writers who can bring them that. If that's not what you want to do, then you're not going to be happy with a manager who's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole and make you write what you don't want to write because they think you can sell it. You'd be much better off finding a manager who is passionate about the kind of 
of stuff that you do want to write and knows people who they can put you with in that area. Absolutely. And, and there's no issue with just putting aside this white piece for now and writing this darker piece of content if you know or if you really strongly believe that it is going to sell. And you can have two samples, worst case scenario. You have those two samples that exist at the same time and in your portfolio alongside all the other ones. And I don't think a darker script is necessarily mutually exclusive with YA. A lot of YA that's being generated right now on TV or features for that matter are pretty dark. Obviously, you've got the 100. Anything on the CW can be pretty dark as well, depending on the on the content. I don't think it's really a zero-sum game. I think you have the opportunity to create and branch out in, in terms of uh, different scripts. Right. And my last piece of advice here would be don't be so eager to get a rep that you settle for something that you're not ultimately going to be happy with or isn't going to be in the best interest of your career. I think it would be better for you as a writer to not have a manager at all than to have a manager who is pushing you in a direction you don't want to be and you end up wasting your time writing a bunch of stuff that you can't use or you don't want to. Absolutely. And to that idea, I think communication is paramount to any healthy relationship between you and your rep because you need to understand how they see you and if how they see you is not how you see yourself, then you need to have a discussion of whether or not you can change their minds and in terms of the way they're selling you to other people, assuming you disagree with it. If you can't, then I would argue that is a deal breaker because they're not bending to what you want. And don't forget, again, that they are working for you. You're not working for them. So it behooves you to be the driving force of your career and decide which lane you want to be in if you want to be in one. So if any of you have questions for us that you'd like us to answer on our paper scrap segments, you can send them in to ask at paperteam.co and maybe we'll be answering your burning question next time. All right, let's get into some TV writing news and what's been happening around La La Land. Well, first up, there was a really interesting report in IndieWire around Big Little Lies Season 2. Now, I haven't really seen a lot of this show, but I'm familiar with it. I think you're a bit more of a fan, Alex. But essentially what happened here was they couldn't get the director from the first season, Jean-Marc Vallée, in time to start shooting Season 2 because he was too busy doing sharp objects. So they brought in a different director, Andrea Arnold, who's a very well-known British director who did things like American Honey and has a very particular style. And they wanted her to direct Season 2. And they kind of gave her free reign and creativity to make it in her style. And then later on, when Jean-Marc Vallée became available again, they brought him back in to essentially try to edit what she had shot back into his style that was present in season one. And this obviously caused some issues because she shot in a very different naturalistic kind of style that didn't really mesh with Jean-Marc Vallée. And so there was a lot of miscommunication from the network, from the showrunner, from the directors in terms of what the plan was all along and then what they were trying to do here. And it created a lot of controversy. Yeah, what was most surprising to me about this article, and uh, granted, I've not seen the the second season yet, but it sounded like they got this very unconventional director, and then they were shocked to find out that she was doing unconventional directing, <laughs> and then they essentially retconned all her work by involving uh, Jamal Vallée. Just the fact that after all the episodes had been shot, what they said was uh, they took Arnold's work and made it look and feel like the familiar style that Vallée brought to the first season. Now, what's really 
weird to me is that further down in the article, they talk about how, first of all, they didn't seem to know what she would be doing because they didn't do their homework of watching her movies. And then the other thing is that Big Little Lies allegedly did not even have some kind of visual style guide, which usually facilitates the transition between directors. So they didn't do their own homework on that scale either. It feels like a really terrible situation for Arnold. I feel really bad for her that she got this amazing opportunity to be involved in this huge project for HBO. It's essentially a dream job on paper. You've got all these awesome auspices, awesome content, awesome network, and yet she's being retconned out of existence by someone else. So I'm not yeah, a huge fan of that. It's, it's bizarre, really, what happened. I mean, it seems like they really gave her free reign to create Big Little Lies in the style of Andrea Arnold. And then when they saw it, they, they didn't realize what Andrea Arnold's style was. And it is very different from Jean-Marc Vallée. Like, they have some similarities. Like, they like to do handheld and available light and that kind of thing. But, you know, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée's style and editing is, is very, very different and more produced and, and fast-paced than, uh, you know, hers. And so it sounded like they were taking huge chunks out of episodes, very rough uh, cut and edits that just made it really wasn't a great experience. And unfortunately for Andrea Arnold, she had to be there on set for DGA rules because she was the director, but then they, John Mark Vallee came back in and was reshooting all of her stuff and dictating shot for shot as a quote unquote executive producer in that capacity, what they should be shooting. So that must be a humiliating experience for someone to have to sit there when you were told what to do, you did it well. And then they were like, oh, by the way, we didn't mean that or we changed our minds. So yeah, it's horrible. And then if you think about, okay, so why did she give all those dailies to John Mark Vallee just like that? I mean, I feel like on one hand, probably in terms of the contract, she just had to do it contractually. But the other thing is, put yourself in her position. I don't feel like it was worth for her to fight the establishment because she's against David E. Kelly, potentially HBO. Uh, you've got big Hollywood heavyweights in uh, Reese Witherspoon and uh, Nicole Kidman, all those people. I'm not saying you know they're necessarily against her. I'm just saying like these are the people that you got to think of when you're thinking, oh, why didn't she like hold down her territory and like fight those creative visions? Well, the reality is that she's still an indie director. She was brought in presumably because of her vision. And now she's against everybody else who's trying to deny her that vision. I feel like that's a really terrible situation. I'm actually pretty disappointed that uh, to like read that article and see what, what's been uh, happening with Big Little Lies. Totally. And I think that it really just, you know, from our perspective as TV writers, cements the importance of having a clear vision for your show and a sense of style and keeping that kind of continuity uh, between the show. Like that's why, you know, TV has so many episodic directors who come in and out, although there are more who are, you know, choosing one director for an entire season. But you have these episodic directors come in and out. And sure, each of them have their own personal style and how they would shoot things if it was their own movie or their own show but they need to lean into what the style of the show is to keep it consistent. And if that had been the expectation that was made clear to Arnold from the beginning, then this wouldn't have happened. But it seems that that's not what they wanted, and then they changed their mind later. So, you know, I guess the lesson we can take away from this as TV writers is uh, understanding what the, the style and the voice and the, the vision of your show is and keeping that consistent or at least being clear about what you want to happen with it if you want a big shift yeah. or not. That's why you always leave a note. <laughs> All right. Now, what else is happening around town? Well, the other big news is Warner Media finally announced its own OTT service, and it will not be called Warner Media Max, as some rumored. It will be called HBO Max because it's not TV, it's HBO Max, apparently. <laughs> I am kind of surprised of the branding, not because uh, there's Max in it. And uh, side note, I feel like the logo of HBO Max kind of looks like the wrapper of a condom. It kind of looks like the the weird, like... Uh... <laughs> it really does. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Extra uh, large streaming <laughs> services for her pleasure. <laughs> Well, besides the the condom joke, I feel like this <laughs> this really potentially devalues HBO's brand because HBO 
for decades had such a very specific premium exclusive quality to the brand and now they're sticking the hbo name on a service that will presumably regroup so many pieces of content from the warner empire none of which or at least 90 percent of which are not really relevant to hbo in of itself because you have like i think friends is coming to the oh, yeah. to yeah. the network i mean you friends got friends on hbo yeah exactly i don't know it's a little bit weird and uh obviously they have to regroup all those different services i think um the service uh, features content from Warner Brothers, DC, CNN, TNT, TBS, True TV, The CW, Turner Classic Movies, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, Crunchyroll, Rooster Teeth, Looney Tunes, and uh, apparently all that is branded under HBO Max, which is a little bit weird. Yeah, that's such a bizarre choice for me to to, to call it HBO, you know, with whatever moniker you want to slap onto the end of that. It, it does seem like they're like, hmm, what's our most prestigious brand that uh, people love? HBO. Great. Let's call everything HBO. <laughs> and it's, it's like inflation. It's like, you know, like you're, you're printing all this money and now it's worth nothing because <laughs> everyone knows that HBO isn't HBO anymore. So I don't know. I, I don't know why they didn't just call it like Warner Media or Warner whatever, you know, like Warner X. Like you know, they, they all have ridiculous dumb names wow. anyway. So Warner, that actually sounds way cooler than HBO Max. Warner X. <laughs> <laughs> they should have hired me. So, um, but yeah, like it does seem that they have this big swath of different entertainment. Like you said, we got CW on there, DC, Adult Swim, all this kind of thing. Like it sounds like it would be an interesting service, but I am wondering with how many services there are now, how it will compete. Like Disney Plus has taken a very particular route of probably just lost leading with a very uh, small subscription fee of like $6.99 a month or whatever for an incredible amount of content coming from Disney. So I think that maybe people will buy into that and that'll be fine. But HBO is already like a $15 a month subscription by itself. So they're going to be tacking more onto that. What is it going to be $20, $30? Yeah. It's it's hard. I mean, a lot of people I know canceled their HBO subscriptions after Game of Thrones was over. And maybe some they'll jeering. Pick, some jeering. Maybe they'll pick it up again when Barry comes back or whatever. But, you know, a lot of big shows have just ended or are ending now for them, like Veep and Silicon Valley. So I feel like they are kind of making this grab for, like, how can we keep people invested in our brand and subscribing? Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, to me, what I'm seeing in terms of the different strategies of the different OTTs and the differences between those services is rooted in the difference between a streaming service that caters to original content and a streaming service that caters to to rebroadcasting old content and essentially syndication. And HBO Max, from what I'm seeing, is much more rooted in the syndication model as opposed to something like Apple TV or Apple Plus or whatever it's called, which is more rooted in its original programming. And networks like Disney Plus and even Netflix are sitting in that middle sphere where they're both catering to syndication content and original content. And Netflix's whole strategy has been to pivot, friends reference, to pivot towards a completely original material strategy. Especially if you look at all their acquisitions, they're even rebranding all their syndication content. I mean, The Good Place is branded as a Netflix original outside of the US. So a lot of those pieces of content are being pivoted towards original programming as opposed to something like HBO Max, which presumably, as it stands, doesn't have any original content that will be produced just for HBO Max. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. And now that we also are going to be having the NBC streaming service coming mm. soon, we're going to have, you know, Warner, NBC, Disney Plus, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. There's just way too many things going on. Uh, yeah. And to, and to that idea, I did want to announce something that I haven't really cleared it with you, but I think it's worth uh, mentioning. We're going to be launching our own OTT service <laughs> called Paper Team Plus, where you can get all the episodes for free, even though they're already free on <laughs> paperteam.co slash iTunes exclusively for everyone because uh, it's free. It's Paper Team. With a one-time subscription fee of a hundred dollars, <laughs> <laughs> why don't we call it 
Paper Team HBO or something. Ooh, Paper I Max. Anyway, moving on. What is the other OTT relevant uh, content slash news that we wanted to mention? It was recently announced that uh, FX Plus is uh, a subscription service that is winding on operations uh, because Disney has just absorbed Fox, taking control of Hulu, and they're kind of going to be aggressively rolling out this Disney Plus service. I guess they don't want anything else to have a plus in the name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but FX Plus is going to be gone as of August 21. Uh, apparently, the subscribers can still find stuff on FX itself and on the, the FX Now app. I, it's, it's always been a very confusing thing to me what exactly you can find where and the FX <laughs> brand of things. So maybe this would be a good thing. But it, it's so interesting to just kind of like so suddenly shut something down to be like, oh, by the way, August, it's gone. We'll, we'll refund all your money. It just seems like a huge move. Yeah, it does sound very similar to something that's probably going to be happening with the DC Universe aspect where you have this subscription service that they launched. And we don't know what it's going to look like in a couple of months, but my guess is that it's going to be folded into HBO Max and uh, the DC Universe content will just be disappearing from DC Universe. It's just weird where you've got all these different acquisitions and within two years, presumably a lot of those contents are going to be available in very specific places in a way that a couple of years ago, they were very disparate in the way of, uh, of uh, finding those shows. I don't know how I really feel about the fact that every company is merging into three different conglomerates and then you're just going to have three different OTD services for different things. I, I don't know how I feel about it, but it sounds a bit weird and uh, a little bit like the big banks, as I say. <laughs> I mean, I guess from a consumer perspective, I would rather have three subscriptions in total and be able to access whatever content I wanted than having to individually subscribe to 10 or 11 different streaming services. But at the same time, you know, it's nice to have the choice of what you want individually and what you actually need. So I don't know. I mean, it sounds like with this one with FX, they're just going to be funneling their content onto Hulu now that uh, Disney, Fox, whatever you want to call it, uh, has such a, a controlling stake of it. Um, so Docs. it's not like it's not like we're going to be missing the content or we're going to be losing out on anything like that. It's just the way that we're viewing it. But it is so interesting to me that so many of these little OTTs have popped up and disappeared just as quickly, like CISO and uh, DC Universe and that kind of thing. Like it feels like there, it's such a weird business move to be like, here's a thing. Oh, what's that? Everyone in the world didn't immediately subscribe to it. Let's cancel it. Like you're yeah. not really building. Uh, anything and and keeping people around. Yeah, I do think part of it is obviously a lot of the executive side, there's changes, there's politicking involved. I mean, DC Universe, I think is a great example of something that they really pushed that platform. If you went to Comic-Con last year, you know that they it was kind of a big deal there. Uh, and presumably they're going to be coming back to Comic-Con this month. And, and actually, when this episode is released, Comic-Con will uh, already have happened. So I'm sure uh, Nick and I, we will uh, have already subscribed to DC Universe at Comic-Con. You do push the services, hopefully, because you believe in them. But then there's a change of executives and uh, different uh, marketing agencies that are saying that maybe you should do something else and rebranding it as HBO Max or whatever it is. And uh, that creates a chain of event that makes the OTT disappear as soon as it appears, which I don't know who it benefits. Probably no one. Right. I'm sure there are shows that haven't even been released yet onto <laughs> some of these streaming services and now yeah. the service is going away. So it's, it's, it's an interesting period period for as you know we transition from the the traditional tv era to to the world of streaming yeah. in in real linear to ott 
All right, so that sums up all the news around town for this month. Uh, but before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. And you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 145. As a reminder, you can always submit your Paper Tees teasers at paperteam.co slash teaser. I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, questions you want answered in our podcast, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? As you mentioned earlier, we're going to be taking a look at all of our TV business resources. A few weeks back, we took a look at all of our TV writing craft resources. Now we're going to be giving you the, the books, the apps, the TV documentaries, whatever it happens <laughs> to be, that will tell you everything you need to know about the business side of TV writing. All right. We'll see you next week. See you then.